Well, my name is Pastor Peter. I'm the campus pastor at our Fort Thomas campus. And what we are doing this week is a little bit of a, what we're calling a campus pastor swap. So Grace Fellowship Church is a multi-site church, meaning this is our Florence campus. We also have a Fort Thomas campus. And uh, we are excited to be able to, every once in a while, show each other's faces at each other's campuses. So today, uh, Brian Fannin, your campus pastor, is preaching to my flock over at Fort Thomas. And I have the privilege of opening God's word with you. And I just want to take the opportunity to thank you for your prayer, for your support. Uh, Fort Thomas is seeing wonderful, wonderful, fruitful ministry. Uh, We added a second service back in the fall. Uh, We started a deaf ministry. So our second service is now interpreted in American Sign Language because the Lord brought to us a family that had a deaf child in it and we wanted to reach out and serve that family. So we have an interpreter who is interpreting the whole service start to finish, even now as we speak, in American Sign Language. And now, all of a sudden, I'm like, boom, a pastor of a deaf-friendly church. So we're we're reaching out to other people because now... uh, Other people are coming to the church who would have been perhaps unreached by maybe many churches, but certainly our church because we didn't have that service available to them. So it's been really cool to see what the Lord is doing uh, among us. Um, We have some technological improvements. We are perhaps expanding in space pretty soon. Not, no, not in (laughs) space. Woo! (laughs) Take, (laughs) and beyond. No, we're, we're. (laughs) We're uh, growing in our space because there is a unit that opened up in the strip mall. We're looking into perhaps leasing that. So a bunch of things happening. Thank you for praying for us. Please come to visit us. We would love to see you any Sunday, uh, 9.30 or 11. And we just greatly appreciate your uh, support. Something else I want to call to your attention. This is just if you are an outline note person and you're following along. I'm going to preach, just to keep you on your toes, I'm going to preach point one, then three, then two. You say, yeah, that's why they sent him to four times. One, then three, then two. I decided to change the order and where I'm going to land, so don't be thrown off by that. It's going to be one, three, two. Just thought I'd let you know. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And as you do that, let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word family? You might say, thanks to you, Sister Sledge. Yes, but beyond that, what comes to mind when when you hear the word family? Could be a variety of answers. I'm sure it's largely based upon experiences in your life with family. Maybe it's parents and siblings and aunts and uncles and cousins and maybe even a family dog. Maybe it's step-parents and step-siblings and extended family. Maybe it's blended family. Maybe it's in-laws. Maybe it's uh, maybe like me growing up with a single mom or a single dad. Maybe it's uh, good and great memories with these people. Family dinners, vacations, Christmases, Easter's, birthdays. But also maybe it's not so much uh, a positive thing. Maybe it's dysfunction. Maybe it's strife. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's neglect. What comes to mind when you hear the word family. Maybe it's ministry. Maybe you're a, a, a PK or an MK, a pastor's kid or a missionary kid. Uh, maybe it's a family business. Maybe you have a family that has a lot of strong personalities and your personality is just not quite as strong. So you say, uh, I never measured up to my family. Um, maybe you are the black sheep of the family. Maybe you are the head of the family. Maybe more times than not, you feel like the butt of the family. Maybe, I I don't know where, it's going to depend on where you stand in your family and the experiences you've had. What comes to mind when you hear the word family? Maybe you never could measure up to that one strong personality of the family. Maybe your family 
tells a lot of family jokes at your expense. Maybe you're not like the rest of your family because you're the only believer. Maybe you're not like the rest of your family because you're the only unbeliever. What comes to mind when you hear the word family? And I ask the question, uh, what comes to mind when you hear this word? Because right, wrong, or indifferent, that's probably going to, in some way, to some degree, inform the way you respond when you see a sermon series title that says, We Are Family. You might say, Woohoo! That's great. We are family. We're just one big, hap, hap, happy family. That's great. Or you might say, Oh, we are family. We put the fun in dysfunction. We are family. Or you might be really saddened by that because maybe it conjures up images and memories and things that are not positive. You know, there's many metaphors and word pictures used throughout the New Testament to describe the church, the people of God. Um, In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul says, you are God's field. Um, In 1 Peter 5, we're told to shepherd the flock of God. So there, we're compared to a flock. Um, Paul also calls us an olive tree in Romans 11. These are just to name a few. There's lots of different word pictures throughout Holy Scripture to talk about the church. But I would say there are four main metaphors, four main word pictures used throughout the New Testament to describe the people of God. The body, right? We're all part of the body of Christ. But now listen to these other three. Buildings, including the house of God. Marriage and family. Body, buildings, marriage, and family. And I bring this up to you to point out that three of the four main word pictures, three of the four main metaphors used throughout the New Testament are familial in nature, right? Family is certainly familial. Marriage brings to mind family relationship because marriage is a, is, is a, a one flesh union and a family um, Buildings or a household brings to mind perhaps a family that would live within a household. These are important and they're familial in nature. So let me call to mind to you a a couple of scriptures that are in your outline. First, the church is God's house. The writer of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And look, and we are his house. We are his house. First Timothy 3 verses 14 and following. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. There the church is called the household of God. The church is also called the bride of Christ, that marriage metaphor, Revelation 21 and verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Then the church is also referred directly as the family of God. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Ephesians 2 verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and look, members of the household of God. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1, Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a what? A Father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Father, brothers, mothers, and sisters. And we could go on and on and on. Hopefully you can see that this sermon series, this title, isn't just like some clever PR stunt that happened between Brad and myself and other people who said, you know what, what's a sermon series title where we can tie in a song from the late 70s and come up with a really cool graphic? Not that I'm above that. I would love to do that. But that's not the purpose of it. We really are 
Family. We didn't make this idea. Hey, I have an idea. Let's refer to our church as a family. It'll make us all want to hug and hold hands and skip through the grass together. That's not what we wanted to do. The word of God calls us family. Hopefully you see that. So what about you this morning? How does the family metaphor impact the way you view your relationship with the Lord? Just right from the get-go. How does the family metaphor impact the, relationship, uh, the way you view your relationship with other members of the church, the family of God. And that's a, a metaphor that perhaps for your mind and heart can change over time. Maybe it used to be awesome and today it is less than awesome in your mind. Maybe it used to be really poor, but God's done great things. Or maybe you have no category for it whatsoever. How does the family metaphor impact the way you view your relationship with the Lord? But you know what? More important than what comes to our mind with the word family... We need to see what comes to God's mind. We need to see what is on God's mind when he refers to us as a family and uses this family metaphor. Whether the memories you have are good or bad, whether they make you laugh or cry, what's most important is this. That we find an answer to the question, what's on God's mind? Why did God refer to us as a family and not necessarily as a team or as a family and not necessarily just as a group? Why does God use this metaphor? And so for that, I want to read, uh, I want to go to a portion of scripture that hopefully you've opened to, Mark chapter 3. And we're going to focus uh, primarily on a point that's made towards the end of this uh, uh, passage in 31 through 35. But what I would like to do is read a lengthier version of that and then walk right up to it. So we're going to start in verse 1. And if you are physically able, would you please stand with me as I read The Holy Word of God, beginning in Mark chapter 3 and verse 1. And this is what the Word of God says. Speaking of Jesus, again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boranerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then, verse 20, he went home and the crowd gathered again. 
so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. But, but truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Lord, this is your word and we are grateful to hear from you. Would you add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your word and help us to Put off our concepts of family. Even if our concepts are good, help us to put them off because we don't want to approach your word with baggage. And it's so hard for us to do that. Would you help us to just open our eyes to your truth, renew our minds by your word, and help us to put on what you think about us as family members related to you and to each other. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, here's what I'd like to do. I want to look back at our text today, get a picture of what's, walk, uh, what's going on, and walk, um, and by walk I mean speed walk, through the text, beginning in verse 1, because I want you to understand and kind of see this as uh, maybe a play or a movie. This is actually one big act, in my opinion, with lots of different scenes, and it's leading up to something. Okay, this is what we would call a proclamation text or a pronouncement portion of scripture where you can sense as we're going, the tension is building and it's building and it's building and it's building. And then towards the end, boom, Jesus has something that he wants to show us. And I want you to get that instead of just jumping into the end. So if you look at Mark chapter three, beginning in verse one, we see Jesus is in the synagogue, in the synagogue and he is effectively what I call poking the bear. And he says, you know what? Hey, let me ask you this question. Um, uh, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He says that in verse four. Everybody's standing around looking at Jesus, just waiting for him to mess up, just waiting for a reason that they can attack or for them to stone him or for them to condemn him. So they, he asked that question. They just stand there, maybe biting their lip, just kind of staring. And that angers Jesus, right? He's angered because of their hardened hearts is what we see in verse 5. So then he says, you know what? Here, you like apples? Hey, like them apples. Stretch out your hand. Boom. He heals it. And the Pharisees go, yes. And then they get to withdraw and they meet with the Herodians. And look at verse 6. So the Pharisees went out immediately, 
immediately. So it's like they're watching and it's like, that's it. All right, let's go. Let's go. So it's not like, oh, you know what? It really, really weighed on them. They were thinking about it. Just grieved them. It was like, yes, we have what we want. Immediately they withdraw. They talk about how they want to kill him, which is not surprising that in the next verse, since Jesus knows all things, that he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Let's go. So he withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd follows. Okay. And that great crowd is probably full of, you know, lovers and haters, right? People who love what he's saying, want to get closer. People who hate what he's saying and perhaps want to capture him or do harm to him. And maybe people who don't really give a care about what he's saying, but really just want to be healed. Like, okay, look, I don't care what he says. This guy heals. This guy can cast out demons. I want to get close to this guy. So they go to the sea and people are following him. And he told his disciples, verse 9, have a boat ready because of the crowd. So he's aware of the fact that we we might have to get, or I might have to get away from this crowd. I might have to back up from this crowd. Hey, have a boat ready because of the crowd. So it wasn't just have a boat ready because we might want to go sailing. There's a crowd coming. We might need this boat. Okay, and then it says in verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. That was just, couldn't not say it, right? You are the son of God. And in verse 12, Jesus strictly orders them not to make him known, right? Like, stop, that's not, not now. Okay, I am the son of God, but not, not no, shh, don't make me known. Don't go there yet. It's not time. Verse 13 We see that Jesus now gets away from the crowd and he goes up on the mountain and he called to him, verse 13, those whom he desired. And they came with him. So you, 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 not you, 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 not you, you. Let's go. Come. They go up to a mountain. Okay. And then on that mountain, he appointed 12 whom he also named the apostles. And then they're listed. And interestingly enough, something that I always notice, Judas is always associated with. With one thing. Always associated with one thing. Probably why, and I don't, I don't know all your kids, probably why when you're going through names of your kids, you're not like, how about Judas? No? Yes? Like, it's, it's never probably hit your list of names to use because there's something that's associated with that. But I'm named, at least in part, after someone who also betrayed Christ, right? Peter? He, was, he didn't have a stellar record. Anyway, that's just something that stands out to me, that... Judas is always associated with that because he had ungodly sorrow. And that sin stayed with him. But godly sorrow produces repentance. Back to the text. Verse 20. Comes off the mountain. Where does he go? Then he went home. And guess what happened? Crowd gathered again. So that they, look at this in verse 20. So that they could not even eat. I don't really know what that means. Something about the crowd made them unable to eat. So I don't know that they felt bad eating because there was a crowd. I don't know if it's that the crowd was just like elbowing to get in his face, just wanting to get it. And he literally couldn't, like, I'm trying to eat. But something, this crowd, in some way, shape, or form, was so intense that they couldn't even eat. And look at verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So they went out to seize him, okay, and the, the word used there, they went out to get him, rescue him, bring him away. They went out to seize him because they were saying he is, he's a lunatic. That's what it would say in the Greek. He's a lunatic. He's insane. And that's his family. Now, 
Who would have been in Jesus' family at this time? Well, we think his, his stepfather, Joseph, probably would have been dead uh, at this time. So his family would have consisted of his mother. We see her later in the passage, right? Mary. His half-brothers, so James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And his, he also has half-sisters, which aren't listed here, but you can read about them in Matthew 13. So he had quite, quite a family. And we know here that his family was concerned for him. So there's two things I want you to see about Jesus' family. One is that they're good family members. They're concerned about their family member. They're concerned about uh, their son, their brother, that some harm is going to befall him. And they want to go and rescue him. They want to go and help him. These are good family members who care for each other. But I also want to point this out to you. They probably didn't even believe in Jesus. Evidenced by the fact that they are going after Jesus to save him. If you believe that Jesus is your savior, you're pretty much solid in the fact that he doesn't need your help. So evidenced by the fact that they're going out to save Jesus, saying he might need our help, we might got to get, or evidenced by the fact that they call him a lunatic, they probably didn't even believe him. They probably themselves didn't even believe in the son of God. It's something to be focused on. And we'll look at that a little bit later. They go looking for Jesus. And then we don't hear anything from them. So picture like, we've got to go get him. He's crazy. Dramatic music. Fades to black. Now, we go to a different scene that you pick up in verse 22. Meanwhile, the scribes came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed. This guy, he's, he's possessed by the devil. He's casting out demons. He's possessed by the devil. And he's casting out the devil by the, the, the strength of the devil. And Jesus says, hey... Let me ask you a question. Look at verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? (laughs) Hey, how does that work? That's what Jesus is saying. Basically, you hate me so much, you're not even making sense. How does Satan cast out Satan? You want to, like, riddle me this, scribes. How does Satan cast out Satan? Verse 14. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's just, he's just debunking their accusations, saying you're, just, you're hateful, but you're incoherent. This, this makes no sense. So gone from your mind should be the idea of Jesus who is just like, lo, they dislike me. He, he's, he comes right back at them and is like, yeah, wrong. No. First of all, I'm not. Second of all, that makes no sense. And then he says, you know what? Verse 28, let me tell you something. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, but, and whoever blasphemies, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But guess what? Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is not a sermon about the, the unpardonable sin, but let me explain to you what he's saying here. You have one hope for salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. Salvation comes in by no other name, by no other person. Jehovah God has given us his son for salvation. And all who put their faith and trust in him are saved. If you call that guy evil, you have no hope. Does that make sense? Because you have one hope, and that's Jesus. If you're saying, no, I God, the Holy Spirit, that, uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus is evil. You blaspheme Jesus then therefore, by virtue of that, you don't believe in Jesus, so where are you going to go to get that sin forgiven? Does that make sense? That's the unpardonable sin. So I just want to just kind of dispel the myth, like, i got to be careful. I might trip and fall into the unpardonable sin. No, it's not how it works. You can't trip over it. This is saying anybody who looks at what is good and righteous and 100% true and say, no, 
Well, that sin can't be forgiven them because the one person who can forgive, you've just now chosen to ditch. Okay, so that's what he's saying. And he's saying, you don't realize what you're saying. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You're calling what is unbelievably good, unbelievably evil. That can't be forgiven. Now, they could repent, but he's saying, if you keep up this pattern, you keep up this thought process, that can't be forgiven. Fades to black, goes outside. No, maybe not fades to black. Maybe just switches to the outside scene. And you see Jesus' family get to the place where Jesus is. Pick it up in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Okay, can we just stop and just grin a little, right? Can you picture it? Somebody comes in, Hey, you're, uh, your mother and your brothers are out there. And Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? And the guy's like, I mean, they're like, I mean, they're like family to you. you, you, They're right out. Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he goes on. And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus is not downplaying family. Does that make sense? He's not ditching his mom and his brothers who were told are outside in verse 31. He's not saying, heck with them. I don't love them anymore. One of Jesus' last words on the cross was making sure that his mother was looked after. Jesus is not down on his blood family. What Jesus is doing here is key. And this is the climax. This This is the big thing right here. This is what it's been building up to. He is, watch, not bringing his family down, raising others up to the level of family. And he is redefining to people who would have been obsessed with bloodlines and last names and tribes and behavior and groups that they're in. He just says, you know what? Look at, the, look at this word. Whoever, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus isn't renouncing his family. He is raising others up to the level of family. Redefines it. It's not limited to bloodlines. It's not about names. It's not about DNA. All are welcome. All can come. Anyone who does the will of God. He is my family. We are family. And now, look at where the scene is. Ends. Please picture this. Jesus, who is arguably in his early 30s, right? Who is he calling his family? The people who are sitting around him right there following him. While the people he spent 30 years of memories with. While the mother who wiped his bottom. While siblings who played with him are outside. And he says, you know what? We're, we're family. We're family. You, you who seek to do the will of God, we are, we are family. He doesn't not love them, but you see their unbelief keeps them where? Outside. 
And those who are following him, who, will, who love him, they press right up against him, even to the point that he can't eat. And he says, here's my family. These are my family. He's in essence saying, you can have a new identity. We are family. It, 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 we, we are family. His, his mother and his brothers still outside thinking they're going to they're gonna kill him. He has officially gone to crazy town. They are going to kill him. What did he say while we were gone? He said the scribes were commit, cannot be saved because of what they said. Awesome. Oh my gosh. They're going to kill him. And they're outside. And those whom Jesus brings close, those whom Jesus says is family, are those who seek to please him. Question. Literally by a show of hands. So participate in this. How many of you have ever, either outright to your face, or just sensed that somebody looks at you and the life you live and the decisions you make and think, they're crazy? How many of you have experienced that? You have that in common with Jesus. His own family. His own family His mom was spoken to by an angel. She's like, crazy. And you know what? It feels good, in a sense, to be odd for God. right? We want to be odd for God. But it doesn't always feel good to be odd. Can we just agree on that? right? Like, it's good. We want to be odd for God. We want to swim upstream. But every once in a while, hopefully we can all be honest, we're human beings. Odd is tiring. Odd is sometimes annoying, and odd is just sometimes odd. And sometimes you're just frighteningly aware of the fact that, yeah, you're swimming upstream, but man, I really am odd. This really, I don't, I really do stand out. I really, I'm, I'm not, I really do stand out at work. I really do stand out at the dining room table. And you know what? That feeling is a really, really important feeling to get a hold of because that's when something very scary can happen to you as a member of the family of God. Identity theft is a real thing. Identity theft is a real thing. And at, at the very least, it's inconvenient. And perhaps, if, surely if you're like me and you use any sort of electronic payment system, at some point you found a charge on your credit card statement that wasn't yours or you found something and it came to your attention. So this, just this past week, I apparently, let me tell you how generous I was, unbeknownst to me, I apparently treated somebody to two nights in a hotel in Quito, Ecuador. Isn't that, they didn't even call to say gracias. They just stayed. And I see this on my statement. So it's like, uh, I have not been to Quito, Ecuador in the last week or ever. Let me call the credit card company. And it basically cost me about 25 minutes and we got the matter corrected. It can be inconvenient. Uh, But sometimes identity theft can tear you up. I have a friend back in New York and her identity was compromised. Friends, it took years for her to rebuild it. Years. Social security. This is big time. Not just a hotel in Quito. This is, I mean, her social security number was found out. They used it to do a whole bunch of things. There was tax implications. There were bank implications. It was so sad. When I say for the greater part of two, two and a half years, I would say 95% of the conversations she had every day had to do with her rebuilding this identity. Identity theft is a real thing. Spiritual identity theft is just as bad, if not worse. 
It's a very real thing. Something is vying for your heart and mind, and you need to protect yourself. Something is vying for your affection. Something's out there that's going to look back at you and say, you're not what you think you are. You're not what the Bible says you are. It says that, but do you really match that? And someone out there is going to say, you're a lunatic. You're crazy. You're nuts. And that's hard. Do you know what's even harder? Is when that idea is not coming from someone out there. But it's coming from here. When it comes from inside. When I'm alone with my thoughts and I look at myself in the mirror, even in my mind's eye, and I say, I think I might be crazy. Or I say, you know what? I don't know that I'm part of the family of God. Maybe I'm not loved by God. Maybe I don't belong. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. Of all the Christians I know, I don't know of a single other Christian husband who would have thought about his wife in the way I just did or said what he just said. You know what? I don't, I don't think there's another Christian I know of in my small group who would have thought about a coworker the way I just did. I don't know if other Christians are like me. I'm certainly not like... I can't think of anyone else. Maybe God is ashamed to have me in his family. Maybe I'm not in his family. And it's you're alone with your thoughts and the spiritual identity theft creeps in, creeps in to say, you're not part of his family. You're not, you're not, you're not part of his fa- we're family. Really? Really? You're not a part of the family of God. You go to church. But let me tell you something. Everybody who stands in a garage is in a car. And just because you go to church and you go to small group and you serve and you do, you're not part of the family of God. Look what you did. Look what you said. Look what you thought. Spiritual identity theft is a real thing. And friends, you need to have a consistent, a consistent diet of God's word feeding you, reminding you who you are in Christ. When it seemed as if my identity was compromised by people who spent two nights in Quito, what did I do? Beep, bop, boop, beep, beep. I called somebody who could do something about it. And they did something about it. Friend, when your identity is being compromised in Christ, when there's something out there trying to steal your affections away from Christ or tell you you're not who God says you are, you know what you need to do? Beep, bop, boop, beep, beep. And listen to the word of God. You need to listen to the word of God that tells you what does it mean to be part of God's family. You need to rebuild and protect your identity by looking to God and his word. And here in our text today, we see the climax of the story. It's a pronouncement text. Climax saying that Jesus makes a very big statement that we are family. And defines the we in verse 35 as those who do the will of God. We are family. You'll protect your spiritual identity by striving to be pleasing to God and God alone. You will protect your spiritual identity by striving to be pleasing to God and God alone. It reminds you who you are and you'll have the opportunity to constantly say to yourself, this is what we do. This is what we do. little insight into the LaRufa home. Every year on the night before... um, a holy day known as opening day for baseball. Every, every year the night before, I watch a baseball movie with my kids. Why? This is what we do. We're the LaRufas. It's a tradition. We do this. Then the next day, I take off of work, 
spend the vast majority of the day downtown with my, with my, uh, with my kids, try to get into the game, watch the parade. And when we do that, we're reminded of uh, we, we like baseball, or they're reminded that they're related to a dad who likes baseball. And, and, but it's not just that we like baseball, it's that we're, we're family. This is what we do. We're the LaRufas. This is what we do. Every year on Christmas Eve, uh, my lovely wife gives us one gift uh, just before we go to bed on Christmas Eve. And the gift has something to do. It's some sort of like sleepwear, pajamas, or a robe, or slippers. Why? This is what we do. We're reminded of the fact that we are, and now we look forward to it. It helps us remember the fact that we're a family. This is who we are. These are just traditions, some of them very silly, but it still reminds me, we, this is what we do. We're the LaRufas. Living a life intentionally seeking to do God's will, desiring to please him, it's key to keeping our identity protected and grounded to remind ourselves we're part of God's family. This is, this is what we do. I'm, I'm trying to please the Lord with my life. Why? This is what we do. This is what our family does. We are family. We strive to please the Lord together. We help each other please the Lord. We pick each other up when we're down. We don't pass judgment on each other. We help each other please the Lord. Why? We are family. This is what we do. You'll protect your spiritual identity by striving to be pleasing to God and God alone. So think about it. What about you? What, is, what step can you take this week to bring Look, look, for real look, right, okay, one area of your life a little more in line with God's will. I'm not going to say up here, what can you do this week to bring your entire life into subjection to the will of God? That's kind of daunting, right? Oh, I only have a, like, pick one, pick one area, one, and say, you know what? Whether that area is just a little off-center or way off, what is one area you can pick in your life? And what is one step, just a step, that you can take to bring that area more in line with the will of God? In so doing, you will be reminded, as you continue to make this a habit, we are family. Why are you trying to please the Lord with your life? This is what we do. This is what we do. We are family. Jesus says that this is who his family is, and that's who we are. Identity theft is a real thing. Here's something else that occurred to me this week as I was preparing. If you look throughout the New Testament, do you know what the people of God are, I want to say never, just to save my inbox, I'll say rarely. Do you know what the people of God are very rarely called in the New Testament? Sinners. You won't find it. It's very rare that the people of God in the New Testament are called sinners. And now for those of us who are part of a uh, 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 particularly a Reformed soteriology and an understanding of Scripture that we believe to be right and true, we capitalize and, and, and major on the fact of focusing on what we were saved from. 
And how, how far off we were. That we were not spiritually sick, but we were spiritually what? Dead. Look, dead. Yeah, we were spiritually. See what I mean? We, we focus on that. That we were spiritually dead before Christ. And we do well to do that as long as we get over it. Right? As long as we look back and say, you know what? I used to be dead, but, then I, but now I'm here. Wow, look at what the Lord has saved me from. But now I'm here. Wow, I had no hope, no help. I was far off. I was estranged, but now I've been brought in. And I don't think we necessarily do that enough. I think we want to overcorrect. So much of the teaching nowadays in Christian circles is focusing on our worth and how we're lovely and how we're super lovable and God loves us because we're so loving and kind and we look good and smell great. And we want to correct from that. And we say, no, 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 it's not, you're a wretch. All your rights is like filthy rags. And instead, then we get all the way back here and we stay here. But we're not here. Does that make sense? We're not the sinners we used to be. We've been saved. Focus on here, but then get there. Right? Remember where we came from, but then you got to get over it. We've got to get over it and look at what God says about us. Because God is not constantly looking back at you and saying, Hey, you're a member of my family, but just remember, you don't really shouldn't be. Hey, I let you in. It's a good thing because you kind of stink. Do, do we, we've not adopted any children. Do people, is that a thing? Do people do that who've adopted children? Hey, just remember, you're part of our family. Kind of. It's not. We need to Say to ourselves what God says to us about ourselves. Our spiritual identity uh, can be protected and, 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 and preserved from harm, from being stolen. If you increase what one author, Ed Shaw, refers to as Christ esteem. Okay? So it's not the world will commonly say, you know what, if you're feeling down, you need to increase your what esteem? Your self esteem. Right? That's not what we need to increase. But we also don't need to wallow and oh, I'm just a wretch. I'm just a wretch. No. If you're a Christian, listen to me. You were a wretch. You were a wretch. Now you're a child. Now you're family. Oh, I'm, a, I'm just a wretch. Not if you're a Christian. You were a wretch. But God doesn't still refer to you as a wretch. Quit, quit calling yourself something God does not. We need to say to ourselves what the Lord says to us about our lives. We need to increase our Christ esteem, thinking more about him. What does it mean for him uh, to, to, to have died for us? What does it mean for him to have grafted us in? What does it mean to be adopted by him? And I put some things there in your outline. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. The fact that you are his... Do you know that the Bible says you are his perfect child? His perfect child. Not, yeah, he's my kid, he's all right. His perfect child, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be just all right. Or that we should be better. That we should be prettier. That we should be more moral. It says he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for friends. He predestined us, for, no, as adoption, as sons. That's what it means to be in Christ. It doesn't mean, yeah, I'm in Christ, so I just kind of, I'm better with God than I used to be. Whoa, wait a minute. 
He has called us that we should be holy and blameless. And I want you to understand that when you look at that text, it says, uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. You're like, yeah, I should be, but I'm not. No, no, he called us so that we would be. Okay, that, that's in essence what is, what is being said there. His, the purpose of his calling was to make us that. And now we strive to act like what we are, and that's the whole calling of the Christian life and the struggle that we have. But we, in God's eyes, are his perfect child, holy and blameless. Do you know the writer of Hebrews says that we are Jesus' holy sibling? Hebrews 2 and verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That when the Lord thinks about Christians, Jesus doesn't go, oh, yeah, it's my brother. I'd rather not be, but we're related. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He says, that's my family. Mark 3, 35, those who do the will of God, that's my family. Like a mother, like a brother, like a sister, that's my family. This is what the word of God says. Galatians 4 says we're an heir to the throne of grace. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then Isaiah 43. Now what I want to do is I'm going to read um, these four verses as we prepare to to sing a a worship song. So our worship team can come up and I'm going to read from Isaiah 43 verses 1 to 4. And what I want you to do is do whatever you can in this crowded room to focus on these words. That could mean turn and read along. That could mean close your eyes and listen. I want you to listen to words that I don't think we focus on enough as Christians in being part of the family of God. Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. You know why? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. Wow. God describing his people. Not as those sticks in the mud who can't get their act together but precious, honored, and then hearing God say to his people, I love you. Friends, I wonder what part of your spiritual identity perhaps has been stolen 
or is in the process of wearing down that needs to be protected and rebuilt because you need to be reminded that we are family. Maybe you want to think about those verses. Maybe you want to write them down and read one a day to be reminded of the fact that we are family, that the tie that binds us together is not our good intentions, it's not our behavior, it's the fact that Jesus calls us family and we do things in our life to please him and we're reminded this is what we do. God loves us. We want to please him because we're in his family. What area of your life, which of those statements is most helpful to you in reminding you of the fact that we have been treated so overwhelmingly good and received God's grace and mercy in abundance because we are not friends, not fellow laborers, but when it comes to our relationship with each other and our relationship with the Lord, we are family. Father, we ask that you would remind us of the mercy and the grace that you have lavished upon us. Lord, you've not been stingy. <laughs> you've lavished it. You just you dump it all on us, infinitely more than we could merit, far beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Lord, you love us. You like us. You've brought us in. You've brought us to the table. Help us to remember the mercy and grace with which we've been treated. And Lord, help us not to fix our eyes on what we were, but may may the mercy of God remind us of who I am. Lord, don't let me look back and stay there. Help me to look back so I can appreciate and love where I am in your sight because of your love for me as a son, for your love for us as sons and daughters and members of your family and brothers and sisters to one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.